But I want to tell people is don't aspire to be at the highest position in the company for security if you don't really understand everything that goes into play for that position. It is a high pressure position. Companies look at you to go ahead and make sure that the impossible that there's zero risk in a corporation. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Rebecca Wynn about the impact leaders can have on the mental health of others, what she thinks is contributing to the shrinking tenures of CISOs, and why the role alone isn't something security professionals should aspire to. When someone says they need a CISO, do they actually mean someone to maintain the status quo? A chief information scapegoat officer? Or someone to actually run a relevant cybersecurity program? What needs to change for people to really understand what the role means and what it takes to be successful? Okay, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show for the uninitiated would you do us the honor of introducing yourself? Tell us about yourself, Rebecca. Well, thank you. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you and everyone here today. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, renowned as being a global chief information security officer, chief privacy officer, compliance at times, uh, risk officer, and always um, trust officers for organizations. I think it's real important that we do shows like this, that we continue to pay forward and happy Women in Technology Month, everyone. Yes. Happy Women in Technology Month uh, to you and everyone else, the listeners as well. This is uh, great timing and you've got some great advice for us. Uh, We had an earlier chat that actually led off with one of my favorite questions with advice to your younger self. Specifically, you, you wrote and delivered a keynote on this topic. And I think it's important to cover this for those that are up and coming in their career and, and ready one day to maybe be more senior within information security or maybe even a CISO. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about what that was and what your kind of the finer points of that presentation was. Yeah, happy to do so. So that was the University of Advanced Technology. I gave the commencement keynote speech like two years ago because there was no really, there was a virtual commencement last year. But one of the things is is I was talking to all the graduates and everybody actually there who was in the the ceremony, was in a big um, hall, is give yourself enough graves to to realize that you're always learning. So give yourself a break and try and give people a break around you as well. At any given moment, any given um, day, everybody's doing the best they possibly can with the time and resources and the information that they have at hand. You know, hindsight's always great. A lot of times being up on the stands is always really great. You can see everything that's going on, but try to remember that everybody is really, really trying to do the best they possibly can at that one moment with what they can see, what they can hear, what they can do. And one of the things is, especially for me, is it's easy to be, I'm a type A personality. It's not a secret that I'm that way. I'm a perfectionist. I could be harder on myself than anybody else in the world. But give yourself a break. Did you really just do the best you could with the information you had? And then if you would have had extra pieces of information, which you've done differently and learn from those pieces, try and give each other a break along those type of lines. And one thing that I, I told people too is in your everyday life, just think about how you drive your car and someone just cuts you off and you get really angry. You know, you try and speed up to catch with them. So you were like, that's who I thought you look like. And they look at you and going, you know, because you're not trying to catch up to them going like, I thought that's what you look like. 
you know, give each other a break. You know, they probably check their mirrors four or five times. They just didn't see you. It happens to you too. So have a blessed day and move on and try, try to be good about that. Workplace, do the same thing. People have made decisions that have come before you based on the time and resources and pressures that they had at the time and what was going on with them in their life. When you go into a new job, just go ahead and say, hey, this is what they did before based on those, those attitudes and everything else. And now that I have these extra pieces of information, how would I best go ahead and direct the company to go forward? And I would tell you that goes over really well with the company too. It's easy when you start a new um, company that you see, you know, you get bombarded with all these things, especially if you want to be transformation and see everything that's, that's going wrong. But try and keep in check that a lot of those people, you know, did the best they possibly could with the time and resources that they had at that moment. You will get further if you go ahead and you start out that way and say, hey, guys, appreciate everything you guys have done to get us to today. I want to work with you guys to get to tomorrow. That's a really good point. I've been guilty of the inverse of that in my past where you join a company and there's existing staff there in this example in information security who have been doing the best they could, probably without the support they, they should have had in a large and complex environment. And you, me, go in there and make bold proclamations or, or just call things out, not thinking that it could be harmful and hurtful, uh, frankly. That, that, I think, is a really good point at all levels when you start a new job. And it's easy for all of us. And so one of the things I wanted to just link back is, is I've been guilty. You said you've been guilty. And, you know, and I would tell you, even in relationships, probably yesterday I was guilty. Recognition of that is important. And then when you see that that happened, apologize to that person. I went back even on LinkedIn and I went back to a person on LinkedIn and, and I said, you know what, looking back that, you know, a year ago when you were at a company that I was at, I came in with getting hit from right and left on all these different things that I had to resolve. And more than likely, I didn't give you as much grace as I, I should have given you. And you had been there for several months and you had a lot more pressures than I did. And you, you were dealing with a lot more items than I was. I apologize that if I gave you extra stress when you were here at the company, it was not my intention. But I want to let you know that now I realize that I probably had done that and I wanted to apologize. So also go ahead. And even if a person has left your circle, be big enough to go ahead and to recognize that in yourself, reach out to them and apologize. And that one will also go ahead and bring you further as a human being. Um, I relieve also that pressure on you. And they do deserve, deserve an apology. So also I tell people, close that loop. They don't have to answer you back, right? It's great if they do answer you back, but they don't have to answer the back. You do need to close that, that loop when you find that you have come up short. Be big enough to go ahead and apologize to that person regardless of what time frame it was. No doubt. I think that that, if nothing else, and this is going to sound selfish, but if you've put the thought into the message and you really mean it, even if they don't reply, you have, to some degree, freed yourself of the burden of of carrying that that you know was maybe unjust. You've given yourself that back and you can now work on maybe the next one. I think another thing to do and I've not always been as, as good at this, uh, good at this as I should have, but it's uh, very relevant. And again, if you mean it and don't do it for everyone, but if there's key people in your life, even if you haven't talked to them for a year, to reach out and to say thank you. It's kind of the inversion of what this, rather than saying I'm sorry or the self-reflection, the same kind of thing as saying, hey, you know what? You know, you're a hell of a person and I just respect you as a professional. And you know, I was just thinking of you. Thank you. And if you mean it, and I've done that and to people that, you know, special in my life and both personal and professional, that means a lot. And that's 
that I think as leaders, we need to do more of both of those things. Yeah. One of the things I know that Eric Cole talks quite a bit about doing this, and, and I thought about this quite a bit the other day when I was listening to one of his um, podcasts is, again, I wish I could be this ambitious, but, but every day when he like seeks out even like to write an email back to people, things along those lines. And I've taken it a little differently. I've looked back at my life on people who have had a, a meaningful impact on my life, who I failed to tell them, hey, this was really meaningful for me. And thank you for doing that. And I've been trying to reach out to people and tell them because a lot of times you don't know that you've had a positive impact on somebody unless they literally tell you. And that, and especially in today's world coming off of everything that everyone gone through 2020 and a lot of people going through a hard time in 2021, that could really be the strong encouragement that someone needs that their life has been meaningful and has had a positive impact on, on somebody and someone just doesn't have and told them. So I encourage people to do that as well too. And you reflect, you know, is there somebody, maybe it was an eighth grade teacher Maybe it's a 12th grade teacher. Maybe it was, you know, someone at your church. You know, have you gone ahead and just said, hey, thank you. Like you said, thank you for being a wonderful human being and you've had a positive impact in my life and I appreciate it. Reach out um, to those people. You can do it anonymously if, you, if you, that makes you feel better too, but let people know how they're positively impacting you. It's absolutely the best to receive that type of feedback. I can tell you from personal experience, I had a couple occasions where there was a, a young gentleman who, this gets a little deep, but I'll make it quick, gave me a card that said, you know, a lot of the guys here didn't have father figures. And, and I'm not that much older. I look older. I'm high miles. But he said, a lot of the guys here didn't have father figures, but you've kind of been that for us. And this is in a professional setting, you know, trying to help some of these, these young men, you know, become as great as I knew that they could be. And they put it in a card. And I, and I still have that on my desk uh, here at home. And I had no idea this was coming, but using this as a small, short story to reinforce the point you just made is important. And I, again, we get caught up in all the politics and all the BS that sometimes happens in our workday, and we don't do this. And even going back, like you mentioned, there was people in high school that helped me that were probably the difference between me going on to university or maybe going to jail, frankly. And so those people are special. And I think that that's something that maybe for the listener, maybe you're the catalyst for that to say, hey, what is maybe spend one morning a week making an inventory of those people and saying hello and thank you. Yeah, Make I give, that contagious. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll give you a quick example from my own personal life that really shook, shook my life. And, and, and then even when I think about it right now, it gives me goosebumps. I, I had been, it was in school, it was in grad school, a lot of studying. I always did a lot of studying in grad school. Finally, leaving after a very long, long day on a Friday, passing a bus stop, and there was a, a lady sitting at the bus stop, and I just felt my heart, something was wrong. So I went over to her, and I said, hey, are you okay? Would you like to talk? So I went ahead, and I talked with her for an hour, hour and a half. We both went on a merry way. I saw, met her again, ran into her a year later, and she goes, do you have a few moments? And I'm going, sure. And she goes, I want to tell you how much you've impacted my life. She goes, I was on my way to kill myself. And you took a moment to notice me and to talk with me. And I wouldn't have been here today if you hadn't have done that. You don't know what ripple effect positively or negatively you're having on people. So really try and take a moment, notice the people around you. And when you feel something in your heart, you need to really heed that. And especially after everything has been the news, bringing up suicide awareness and stuff like that, I wanted to take a moment to go ahead and bring that on. And a lot of times it's just noticing people. And making sure that they know that they're seen and they're seen by you. Yeah. We don't 
often, I mean, taking it into, that's a, certainly a very relevant worldview, but even into the professional circles, uh, we don't know what everyone's struggling with on the inside. And in running and leading an organization, it benefits us not only as good humans, but as, as hopefully great servant leaders to try to understand the individual and be able to identify, are they struggling? Are they frustrated? Are they hurt? Do they need time away? Has there been a crisis? It's a little more difficult in the virtual world. Maybe you could share some thoughts on that to say all of what you just said, I completely agree, but under two different lenses to say, hey, how do you add this to being a great security leader? And how maybe do you need to alter that if you're all virtual now? I can't see your body language as easy. It's a little harder for me to judge the tone of your voice. So any insights there? Well, one thing, I think it is important that you have people at least go ahead and turn on their video so you can virtually see them. Mm -hmm. You can see that if someone's not keeping up in their, their upkeep, you can see if they just look unwell. You know, recently I've had this myself where a person virtually, you know, like, man, they really didn't look well. And then we found out that just a couple days later, they found themselves in the hospital. They weren't well. I think one of the things leaders, too, is to remind people that you do have EAP programs, right? So employee assistance programs. And, and they're there not only for if someone's having a work struggle, but there could be family struggles and different things along those lines. I think it's real important as leaders to go ahead and remind people those are available to them and that there's no negative stigma for reaching out to those. That's what they're there for. And don't rely on human resources to do it for you. It doesn't come as strongly when human resources does it anyway. It does come as a leader when you do it. And talk about times when then maybe that you've gone ahead and had to go ahead and seek counseling or something like that. I literally lost two family members over at Christmas. I, I had an uncle who had a heart attack and died. And then my brother went in, found out he had terminal cancer, and he, he died several weeks later. Both of those are really shocked. And, and I'll be honest with you, no one reached out to me to talk about those services or anything like that. I think they really should have. They would have really cared as a human to go ahead and say, hey, I know you're probably going through a hard time and maybe directly here might not feel comfortable at work. I want to let you know we have these wonderful things for you and we do care about you as a human. And we know that at times you need to be able to talk these things out. How can we best help you? That would have gone a long way. So I think I'm really more in tune to that personally. And I've done that to, to staff members who have gone through a hard time. And it might even be people going into a, a marriage for the first time and all the stress that they have to do with that, reminding people of that. So I, I tell people, remember the human and remember how you would want to be treated if you were in that situation, whatever that situation is. And don't be afraid to address it. You can address it nicely. But I would tell you that that recently to me, no one reached out to me that way. And I wish they had. But that's one thing is, is, is leaders, you need to think about people who have other stuff going on in their life. Companies, a lot of times, do go ahead and have outreach. Don't be afraid to touch base with it. You don't have to get in the nitty-gritty, but it does show that you care when you go ahead and you, and you mention that, I am thinking about you and here's services that we have available, and do you need me to go ahead and help you connect with other services, right? You don't have to be that personal service yourself, but be able to go ahead and be a conduit, get to those services, shows a, a level of care. And I think also trying to be... You know, understanding that I, I used to say this, and I guess I still do, a good day at work can mean a good day at, at home. And the opposite's true. A bad day at work can overflow into a bad day at home. And so as a leader, you know, understanding that your temperament and the decisions you make and the deadlines you place on folks, all that cascades onto the individual. And I think letting them know that you care about them as a person 
not just as a worker is sort of step zero. I don't know that every organization does that very well. And I definitely know that not every leader does that very well. I think in security, we often promote folks for their, at least traditionally have, for their technical abilities and not for their core leadership abilities, not their EQ uh, necessarily. And so I think in many cases, not only do we know that we have impossible odds in many cases and work crazy hours because our passion drives us to it, but we put up with bad management, bad leadership as well. So along those lines, I know you did an article a couple of years back effectively saying, don't become a CISO. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why would you say that? Why would you give some, some of that advice that, uh, to kind of shy people away from it? It's a good question. I do get asked that. So one of the things is I do get tired of um, speaking at universities and speaking at, at other conferences and people come up to me and they're like, hey, I want to be a CISO. And I'm like, do you know anything about security and what goes into leadership and all that? No, it's kind of like, why do I want to be in cybersecurity? Because I watched an episode of Mr. Robot. That's unfortunately that the term CISO has gotten watered down to at times. I've seen where a person who puts the asset tag on the computer is called CISO and organization. And so I want to tell people is don't aspire to be at the highest position in the company for security if you don't really understand everything that goes into play for that position. It is a high pressure position. Companies look at you to go ahead and make sure that the impossible, that there's zero risk in a corporation. And I tell companies that's unrealistic. No company runs with zero risk. But if you if you're not going to have a big if you're not going to be a big thinker, if you're not going to be strategic, if you're not going to be put in all the hours it takes to be technically minded, if you're going to take on all the background and stuff you need to know to understand strategy and EBITDA and how you're going to go ahead and manage budgets and how it is to to go ahead and manage personnel. If it's not that you you understand that if unfortunately a nefarious event happens, you might be the first one out the door, right? Who's going to get the axe? If you're not willing to take all that stuff on, then then not a, then you're wrong. If so, if you're not willing to be spending you know 55 to 70 hour work weeks, not going to be a CISO. If you're not willing at times to be able to, do, you might be, go ahead and spend 18 hour days. Not that you like them, but you might not. Be, but you might be called to do them. Then it's not for you. And so that's the one thing is, is look at, you know, all the stuff that's in play. It's like a lot of times people say, I just want to grow up to be the president of the United States. Well, why don't you look about every single thing that goes into play to be the president of the United States and how much they age within four years by being president of the United States due to all the stress, then maybe you have a better appreciation of that position and maybe say, hey, you know what, let me work instead on being the best cyber professional that I can be. Let me do that first. And then if it ends up being that over a period of time, that I earn my way up to be a CISO and I'm happy at that position as well too. And I can make a meaningful change in organizations and I can actually protect that organization from the cybersecurity, you know, bad guys that are out there, then that's the position for you. But instead try to be the best cybersecurity professional you can be and good things will happen. So it was more from that attitude than I just get tired of people saying, oh, I'm a CISO. I just get tired of that. It is a little irritating I enjoy the fact that people are excited about joining the field. I would never want to dampen their enthusiasm, but your points are are extremely well made. And even on the technical side, you know, my father used to say, you know, how bad do you really want it? Like, how are you willing to pay the price? And there's a lot of price uh, to be paid even on the technical side to, to, to learn the skills required to be good, let alone great. 
you know, what is it you want to be great at? And we have so many niche kind of pockets within InfoSec, application security, forensics, malware analysis, right? And incident response, all these things. You can spend a whole career just in one of those individual places. And that's a, a thing that should be celebrated. Racing to CISO probably shouldn't be. No, and, and there's a reason why CISOs, you know, it was 26, 24 to 26 weeks. I mean, not weeks, maybe it is weeks today, but um, months was the average life. And now you're looking at, when, when I talk to people, we're looking at 15 to 18 months is now the more norm to stay in a position. There's yeah. a lot that's involved on it. And there's a lot to stomach and there's a lot and there's a lot of stress and all that kind of stuff there's a lot of good stuff as well too but that's what i tell people there's um it's it's more than you know just i have the t-shirt well it's a point you made earlier that some people really have a strong connection to their employer and they say hey i want to be there it's a little less common these days but hey i want to retire from this company and the point you made was that well if you're going to be CISO, that's probably not the case now, there's a, there's a couple of, of fields out there that you can see still longer. Education's one that you still will see some people have been there five, six years and stuff like that. But not when you're talking about merging technologies and stuff like that. You don't see that for a variety of reasons. I tell people because people say, hey, what is it when you go into a new role? Usually you go in a new role, you know, you do your 90 day, 100 day. A lot of times you're fighting fighters all the time. A lot of times when you come in, it's like, hey, we now want to dump on you and everything that we were mad on the previous CISO. So now get all this stuff done real quickly. You run through that that map for the f- the first three months, then you start actually making headway out of six months, and then you start coming to your six to nine months, and then you're like, whoa, everything that they promised me ain't gonna happen. I don't have budget, I don't have personnel, I'm not getting my backfills, and then you're like, oh, I am not gonna be able to make a meaningful change, and I'm seeing a lot of risk that the company's gonna have, and they said, hey, it's all on your head, so I gotta spin out because I'm gonna be not the chief information security officer, but I'm going to be the chief information scapegoat officer. And that's not a career choice either. So that's why I think too, that you see people spinning out is, is waiting to see what is the true corporate culture and fabric for their appetite for security, privacy, and compliance. And, and I've been with companies before that they've been upfront and honest with me on, you know, we, we want to go back to minimum viable right, security, right. compliance, and privacy. We want to go back to yesteryear. And I'm like, Thank you very much. Have a nice life. You know, that's not where I am. I'm, I'm a transformer. I take companies to the next level of excellence. I, I'm not taking people back to yesteryear. That's just, I think, setting the company up for failure, in my professional opinion. And that's definitely setting me up for trying to explain why I stayed in a bad career choice uh, or organizational choice for the rest of my life. Right. But there is a push. There are companies who are going back to minimum viable. I think it's a mistake. I want to get to that. But before we go there, why do you think that we have, if you look at chief counsel, chief privacy officer, you look at even a CFO, the tenure of those three titles, typically in a, in a larger company, pretty long. Counsel stays around forever, right? And, and you have a, a position that's, I would argue, is of equal risk in the CISO, why are companies not treating it as seriously? Why, are, why in many companies is the position uh, or the framework of security kind of throwaway? Why is it least viable, minimal? Why are we there in many organizations, do you think? It's perplexing to me as well. I think one of the things the chief financial officer, just because they're so tied into the accruals and EBITDA and stuff like that, EBITDA, excuse me, that I think there's a nervousness about 
uncoupling a CFO to get a new one in and the time frame and, and what's that going to be on our bottom line and in the, all the other structures that we have. So I think that's one of the reasons why on CFOs take a longer period of time. I think on legal counsel, it's similar. We're embedded in these lawsuits. We're embedded in all these other legal stuff that's going on. And we trying to spin out a general counsel to spin a new one in. We believe that the cost to the company is greater than actually doing that. What we'd rather do instead is let's augment our general counsel with some outside counsel and lower our risk that way. So I think that's those are the reasons for those ones. And I, and I give a case in point, and I'm not picking on per se, just it's a case in point when you look at Equifax. And if you go ahead and you read the Senate hearing on it or the House hearing on it, I recommend that for everybody's in my position to go do it. But one of the things is, is you end up having the, the CISO reporting into chief legal counsel, chief legal counsel doing a lot of the, the go between, between that and the CEO. And then, and then who was asked to actually retire early? Remember, the CIO and the CISO both had already announced before the data breach that they were both retiring at the end of the year. They just both were asked on paper to do it a couple of months early, I think, just for appearance sake. But why were they asked to do that when you end up having like legal counsel and other people who are reporting directly to the board? And actually not allowing the people who were really in the day to day, closer day-to-day operations didn't have those direct um, communications, but they were held responsible. And it's the same thing. And they're still there to this day. That's really interesting. And I, I should have known that, and I didn't, that the reporting structure, you know, we often see the CISO reporting into somebody like the CIO. And so the, the CIO or, or maybe CTO sort of represents security in the bigger meetings and maybe even puts a different lens, a more favorable one maybe uh, over that. But I didn't know that, that the reporting structure was that way. That's, that's fascinating and telling to the answer to the question I asked. And that's, I did not know that. Yeah. And it's funny when I, I get people ask me on time, they're like, who should you report to? Because we're not going to have you report directly to the CEO. And I said, well, I said, who's going to be my best champion? Hmm. Because the one thing I've noticed, too, is whether you have CIO or CFO or chief legal or CTO, I've reported to all of them. Who is going to be my, my champion? Who's going to champion me, champion me each and every second of the day? And that's the other thing that I've seen where people said, you know, where have things started falling apart? Well, that person, even though they have good intentions, they, they have other constraints because they're wearing other hats. So when they get enough pressure from either other executives in meetings or from the CEO, what happens? You know, my first duty is to be the CFO. My first duty is to be chief legal counsel. My first duty is to be the CIO. My first duty is the CTO. So then you're like, how come your initiatives for security compliance and privacy get put on the head back burner? Because if there's enough pressure on that, that, that person in that position, their true position is going to take precedence. I completely agree. I don't know that in every situation that reporting directly to the CEO is necessary. I, I I do like that model. I think that what would be better for many would be have a good advocate, which is what you're talking about. Have a good, true C-level champion. See what I call champion. Them. Yeah, and because you have to get sort of groomed, and at the point you're briefing the CEO directly on security. I'd argue that your position almost needs to be a little larger than just security, right? We're seeing the titles morph a little bit into larger or grander view, and you might have multiple folks reporting to you as this new title, which may include 
a variety of CISO type folks. But I do wonder, well, I'll ask you, since I'm wondering, what are the, the, the best routes for a CISO in terms of reporting? And a double question, what's the worst place to report into? Let's maybe start there. So far in my career, and it, it depends on who the people are who are in those titles, right? So I've had, I've had very good people, and I've had you know, one person for me who was like the worst person for me. They were a CFO, and they were co-founder of a company. And I could not get penny one from them in budget ever. So I tell people that has been the worst. But if someone says, hey, would you not report to a CFO? Well, that's not fair because I'm basing on one bad experience, one CFO, but I might go to another company that that CFO is an awesome champion for you who do go ahead and understand that you need to be able to, to have budget to get things done and everything else. So, so I tell people, don't get hooked up as much on the title, but look about what type of people do they put in that title, right? And you have to look at what type of people they put in that title as well, too, because they might have learned from their past, and then they might have a good person today. And if that person leaves the organization, what kind of person are they going to put back in that position, right? Do they, right. Have a, a, do they have a track record of always having a very strong advocate for security and privacy and compliance and that in that position historically? Or was there an event that happened in the past that now that is their new baseline is to always have these type of people? Because one thing I think people have to be careful about is you, you work for an organization, you look at the culture the best you possibly can during the song and dance of interviewing and everything like that. You go ahead and say, hey, I'm going to report to this person. But I've actually been with the company before that I got hired by the CTO, really connected with the CTO and all that. And then they dropped their resignation within six weeks of me starting. So now that the person who I really thought was going to be my advocate and everything else was now right. gone. And then that, that's what took me over to the CFO, which was like a nightmare for a year and a half. So that's why I tell people, you got to kind of see what, what's the culture as well and what is the historic of the company. You know, and it's the same thing when you look at is, is do they spin out of CISOs every 15 months? And every 15 months, does it go back under the CFO? And so nothing happens and a CISO starts and a, system, a CISO leaves. Right, right. A CISO starts and they leave, be it on their own, re because they, they, they leave or the company has to leave. There's some sort of issue going on there where even though they culturally might say security, privacy, and compliance are, are number one, but you keep, you know, every time you hire a top-notch CISO, they leave. I think that should be a flag to you as well. And do you want to go ahead and now are they going to historically change because now you're in that position? Probably not. There's probably some other type of culture issue happening. One kind of thought experiment that I think is, is worth looking into today with you is what do CISOs do when they're done being CISO? What do they evolve into beyond CISO? People ask me that and I go, where do you want your career to be in five years? Where do you want to, where do you want to be next? And I said, I still want to be the, the best chief information security officer, chief trust officer that I possibly could be. That's natural niche for me. I don't aspire to be chief information officer. It's, I can do the role. I don't aspire to be chief technical officer. I could do that. There are there is a thing about you know chief security technical officer roles and like that. And if, fine, but I don't aspire to be those. Right, like I didn't aspire to be a CISO. But I tell people it's always to be the, the best CISO I possibly can be. And then people say, well, if you were going to quote unquote retire, what would you do? I would still go ahead and do teach. I would consult. I would be, hey, let me come in 
and do a roadmap for you and how to fix your organization and here it is and then leave, I would still be paying out that way. But people ask, you know, I'm going to use the CISO as a stepping stone to be a CIO. Then I ask people, well, why don't you go ahead and get on a pathway more to be directly a CIO? If anything, if you really want to be a CTO or CIO, I'm not sure that CISO, it might be good to understand. I'd argue that if you understood security better, that, you know, you would make life easier for the next CISO (laughs) that you worked with. But other than that, I don't know that there's enough cycles necessarily. Do you think that, that the changing face of technology and the adoption of cloud and digital transformation, does it change anything more than maybe the title? of a CISO or do you see in general beyond that that there's a that one day we won't use the term or moniker CISO anymore? Well I have companies now that that talk to me quite a bit because I think most people out there know that I'm looking for my my next opportunity. But and we do talk about titles. I used to a couple years ago be tied in a little bit more to the CISO title as a title, but like you said, there's emerging technology and things along those lines. So what I do is, is like, because some of them have been burned by CISOs, I think is at times because they've, they've hired junior people, or they hired people who I can spell it, C-I-S-O. And so they've been burned before. So part of it is like, what is the root? Why don't you like the title? And then where do you see the company growing to? And then I understand on how you want the title to best align your attitude and where you want to transform and grow to. So is that chief innovation trust officer? Is that chief emerging security officer? Is that global head of securities and strategic initiatives? You know, I tell people I don't get as tied anymore. What I do instead, I look to see how they want to transform the organization and then how as they're transforming the organization and they're looking at their org as a whole and they're looking at their titles as a whole, how are we being more future thinking and better aligning the titles to really how the world is today right. in representing. And so I've been a lot more open to that conversation versus like, let me tie, tie into an acronym that unfortunately isn't meaning as much as us in, in key leadership positions in our heart know that it means, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, I would expect it to evolve, much like technology and business operations. Would I, I, you know, the CFO title hasn't changed much, but I don't know that it needed to. I think that the CISO title may need to, or or the the scope, or there could be just like we have very specific areas of of uh, infosec that are very specialized. I, I think we'll have executive level representation at those as well, uh, and I think that there's some. Some stuff's going to fall off and some stuff's going to uh, become more important, right? We're, we're not going to run our own data centers anymore, as an example, right? So some of the skills that go with that might not be as important, but having ways to find relevance is, is even more important than ever, right? And so there's a, there's a transition that's going to go on forever, I think. One thing I wanted to cover with you, because it was a little bit, it comes off at the surface a little controversial, but it, it, it means comes from the right place, I think. You said that not everybody can do information security, uh, is a comment you made to me in an earlier conversation. And it was getting into this more of a mindset of the individual. I've had somebody else on the show mention this as well. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that is and and how did you form that opinion of this sort of protection mode and, and 
either somebody has it or they don't? Information security, cybersecurity is a specialty. And one of the things I like to explain to people, it's like you have a lot of doctors out there, but you don't have as many surgeons. And even when you look at surgeons, not everybody's like a neurosurgeon. And, and that's the one thing I, I tell people, it looks like us. When the, the thing is, is you, you see people who like that person understands technology. Therefore, you can go ahead and, and put them over in InfoSec because we, we want them out of networking or we want them out of, of the other areas they are. And so we'll stick them over here. But it's a way of seeing things. It's a way of, of wanting to get to the root cause of an issue. It's, it's looking beyond only availability to what's going on with confidentiality, what's looking at integrity, right? The, the um, security triad. And what does that mean? What is the so what? How are we carrying risk across the organization? How can bad guys transverse across the organization? If we go ahead and, and someone goes ahead and gets on this one machine and you're like, hey, but I have antivirus, I have all the stuff in the machine, right? It's then looking and say, but what does that machine touch? And then if, because if I was riding the rails, like I say, if I was on this machine and I could ride every avenue out, could I go ahead and potentially get to another system? And from that system, I can go ahead and take you over. It's a way of seeing along those lines. It's really a different set of critical analysis skills, critical thinking skills. And the people who I see who have always at their core been really good at, good at it are people who innately that kind of stuff energizes them. You know, they've always liked the whodunit. They've always liked the mysteries. They've always tried to go, hey, if you go right, how can I go left? If you can't come in the front door, then can I get through the back door? If I go through the back door, can, is there a window? If there's not a window, can I crawl underneath? Can I get over top? They're always looking for other avenues and stuff to get in and then how to block people out. Those people, I think, have a more natural fit for us. The other people are valuable too. I just think that they're valuable as being helping me be security ambassadors into those other areas, which have a, a lot narrower focus. I don't know what the percentage would be of, of the people that have that. You said earlier, you, you defined it also as sort of an ethos. I don't know what the percentage of that is or isn't. Uh, I jokingly have told people that my time spent as a farmer, I grew up on a farm, helped me become a better troubleshooter and a, a better security person later on because the sort of the original hackers, I argue, were farmers. You, there was no internet uh, when I was growing up. There was, but we didn't have it. And you were your own mechanic, your own programmer, if you will, sometimes your own doctor. And learning those skills of how to take things apart and put them back together and then how to get them to do things they weren't natively supposed to do helped me greatly. Now, I don't know if I was born with that or it was sort of built into me as a process of, of being a farmer and, and all the rest of it, but I, I do think it helped. The other subgroup I, I think are fantastic. Strangely enough, I had many musicians, many band members marching band and traditional bands work with me in uh, specifically in the sock that were brilliant you know they they say you know music is math and for some reason they were fantastic as well i found that interesting i don't know if you have a comment on that as well yeah i played trombone actively orchestras um contra bands latin jazz bands and i tell people i have to hold my own but i have to pay attention to what's going on around me as well and i play trombone which is a long tuning slide so you always have to be doing adjustments. And I think that actually equates really well on, on security. It's not set it and forget it. It's always paying attention to what's around you. It's always going ahead and, and willing to make fine adjustments based on what's happening around you, as well as enabling everybody else and helping everybody else do their job better. And so I actually equate quite a bit about how this is like a symphony and playing 
playing symphonic music or, or, or Latin jazz because I like to sass it up a bit. So yeah, I think it's very strong. I think trombone players should all look about getting into cybersecurity. <laughs> now, it, it's a really interesting thing that, that I, just an observation that I think I, I found as, as I moved up into leadership and then executive leadership, what seeing these patterns, which is what we're talking about, what are the ingredients of the individual and attributes? Yeah, so I, I completely agree. I think if there's a musician out there that is interested in, in learning new things and, and wanting to uh, exercise on that, uh, information security is one great route to run for sure. Yeah, but no flute players allowed. I'm just joking. I have a family member who plays flute, so. <laughs> I'm not talented enough to play much of anything, but I have great respect for those that do. Rebecca, I want to thank you for your time today. We've got uh, one final question that I ask every guest, which, you know, pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO. What does being a new CISO mean to you? Being a, a new CISO to me means a person who tries to work one with the organization, is not afraid to speak up in the organization, and never lose sight that the bad guys are out there across the keyboard and that we're in a cyber war at all points in time. It's unrelenting, of an exciting career path, and it was exciting talking about some of it with you today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you and I'd like to come back someday. Absolutely. In this episode, we touched on some difficult topics. If you were thinking about suicide, are worried about a friend or loved one, or would like emotional support, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. The lifeline is available for everyone, is free, and is confidential. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.